Okay, let me pray again just for the studying the word together. <laughs> Father, we come to your word so it's precious and always significant and powerful to change us if we listen to it. So we ask you to help our minds and hearts be attentive. In Christ's name, amen. amen. All right, so we're in Acts chapter 17 and we're going to run around a lot, so keep your fingers flexed. So last week I told you I wanted to return to Paul's address to the Athenian philosophers, which we looked at in that whole story last week, but I want to focus on a key sentence in that today. It, it's, a, it's a declaration. It's a declaration to all men. So obviously it's something of the greatest importance. And Paul's language leads us to a theological matter that is worth discussing and that's what I want to do this t today. Um, so we're going to look at two aspects of this declaration, what it means, and then the theological implications of this statement regarding how people are saved. So we've seen in past weeks that Luke has this sort of pattern, the way he writes his book. Um, he tells, you know, he's telling the history of the early church and all that, and then, you know, the last large section is all about Paul's missionary efforts and all of that, but he's always dropping in, if you haven't noticed, because I've been pointing it out, you should have noticed, um, these great doctrinal truths. I mean, really clearly stated and designed to shape our understanding so we will make sound doctrinal conclusions from reading a history book, basically. So he's always dropping them in there. Uh, Acts 16:14, we talked about God's work and regeneration and the salvation of Lydia. What did it say? The Lord opened her heart to believe the things spoken by Paul. So the God opening the heart. In chapter 16 verse 31 we saw Paul's answer to the Philippian jailer who asked, what must I do to be saved? And what did he say? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And then in Acts chapter 17 verse 2 and 3 it says that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead and this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So all of these great truths. And then last week we looked at this declaration in chapter 17 verse 30. Therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That's just an awesome statement. But I want to focus on that one little part of verse 30 where it says, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. So last week, uh, I kind of threw out this uh, question. I said, why does Paul say God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent instead of God is now declaring to all people everywhere that they should believe? Why use that word instead of the word he used with the Philippian jailer? Believe was the answer to the Philippian jailer. And he asked specifically, what must I do to be saved? And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So if God said all men should repent, why didn't he tell the Philippian jailer to repent? Um, let me give you a short answer right now so if you drift off later, you'll have, you'll have this solution to this, this problem. I'm not saying you should drift off and I'm not encouraging you to drift off. It just happens on occasion. I've seen the drowsiness. Okay, here's the short answer. Faith and repentance go together. Faith and repentance go together. Protestant theologians ever since the Reformation have used the phrase inseparable graces. These are two acts of grace upon a human being and they're inseparable. Faith and repentance 
go together. Faith is what brings about our justification, our, our right standing before God. Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? But faith is only part of what happens in this grand thing called conversion or this transformation of becoming a Christian, going passing from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, all the biblical language there. And again, we talked some weeks back about regeneration, the new birth, Lydia, Acts 16, the Lord opened her heart. That's part of that process. Jesus said, you must be born again, right? That's the wellspring of conversion, this regenerating work of the Spirit. You can't make yourself born again. How are you even going to try, right? If I tell you, be born again, well, you're going to go, okay. <laughs> How do I do that, right? Um, God does that. God does that. And that's something God does deep within us. And he awakens us. He grants us spiritual life. He opens our eyes to see how wonderful Jesus is and the salvation that he offers is. How amazing it is that he purchased our salvation with his blood. I mean, that's incredible. Incredible. And some people just go, oh, yeah, that's an interesting old story. And, but if you say, wow, that's it. That's what I've been looking for. That's regeneration is opening your eyes and your heart to the truth. So with that new birth comes faith. And you could say that, you could say that the new birth, and theologians even talk this way, it's like, I don't want to get into conscious and subconscious, but it's like at a very deep level that we're not even aware of. But when it, when it turns into faith, we're aware of it, because we've suddenly got this faith. We're putting our faith in Christ, and so that's when it kind of comes to the surface, and we know it. So we actually experience the new birth by believing. When, when we trust in Christ, and turn to Christ and give ourselves to him. That's that new birth working itself out in our life. So we believe in Jesus. We come to Jesus. So to call for faith, believe on the Lord Jesus is totally appropriate. That's a completely right thing to do. We have to choose Jesus. We have to take him as our own. We have to follow him. We've said before that saving faith is not only intellectually believing that Jesus is the Lord and Savior, but that he is my Lord and Savior. That's where it goes from intellectual belief to faith, saving faith. So I will follow him. I will worship him. I will serve him. I will give myself to him. That's saving faith. But when you preach to somebody, you may quite properly say, you must be born again. That's fine. But then what does that mean? So if they say, well, how do I do that? All right, uh, how do I do that? How do I rebirth myself? Well, you don't rebirth yourself, right? But what must I do? So the preacher doesn't stop there. The, the person that's listening to him or the interested person when you share with them, with, if they said, how can I be born again? The answer would be, turn from your sin and trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's what you're supposed to do. And then if you do that, the new birth has already been at work in you. So you must be born again. So that would be correct to say that. Repent and come to Jesus. That would be perfectly fine because if a person truly repents, faith is there. Faith is there. So if you just say repent and they do, faith is going to be behind that repentance if it's real. But you might need to explain repentance, right? So repentance, repentance is more than just rejecting a bad habit or saying, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. How do you turn over a new leaf anyway? <laughs> Repentance is more than feeling sorry for what you've done. I'm, I'm so sorry I hurt so and so. That's not the same as repentance. Repentance is actually turning to Christ. You're, you were here, 
involved in these things, doing these things, and you're turning to him. That's repentance. So it's turning from something to something else, or in general, but specifically here, it's turning from something you were or are or were committed to, to Jesus, and you're giving yourself to Jesus. You're turning to him. So you're forsaking the path that's leading you away from God, and you're turning onto the path that's bringing you to God, and that's through Christ. Peter finishes uh, this way in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. He says, um, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now notice the next verse. Verse 37, it's very important. And notice the effect that Peter's words had. What did he just say? You crucified Jesus, the Lord and the Christ, the Messiah. You crucified him. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Pierced to the heart. That's, that's pretty strong language. They were guilty. They felt it. They felt it. Feeling it deep inside. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Great question. And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, not believe on the Lord Jesus. He could have said that, but why not say that? Why say repent? Because it's clear from their question that they believe what Peter's been saying about Jesus. They are guilty and they know it. Not just of executing a good man, an innocent man, but they killed the Lord. They killed the Messiah. That's serious. So they believe that. So this is a case when calling for repentance, primarily, that that's probably the best thing Peter can do. Because that's going to bring that faith up for those that, that believe. Repentance as an inseparable grace will show if they have true saving faith rather than just this mental acknowledgement of Jesus as the Messiah. That's not saving faith. But when they turn to him, when they repent, that is the sign of saving faith being present. So anyone with saving faith comes to him as the Lord and Savior. The heart embraces him. So Peter knows if they repent, they have saving faith already. They're going to come and make their allegiance known by getting baptized. That's why he asked for that. You're turning to him, now you get baptized in his name. You belong to him. So you see something similar in Acts chapter 3. Uh, Peter is talking uh, to another Jerusalem crowd. This one witnessed this great he healing miracle. And in verse 13, it says the, he says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted for you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Wow. So those are the facts. They are guilty. Had they believed in Jesus then, they wouldn't have disowned him. But they did do that. Is there any hope for them? Yes, verse 17. Now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent. Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. 
repent and return. It's very appropriate because he's convicted them of their crime. They're feeling it. He tells them what they do about it. They can repent. Now the New Testament word for repent, it's metanoia in Greek. It literally means changing your mind, but it came to have a deeper meaning than that, even culturally and also um, especially in the Bible. Just a a deep regret, an earnest turning in a different direction. Is that kind of an idea? I started to think of an analogy. I was thinking of uh, all the weird things going on in the world, but some of my mind landed on Venezuela. Imagine you were um, really unhappy with Venezuela and Hugo Chavez came along and promised all this Marxist glory and beauty and joy and taking care of all the poor and giving everybody everything they ever wanted and all those kind of things. And you followed him and so you turned against your government and you supported him and he became the ruler and he turned out to be a monster, right? Just taking everybody's stuff and brutalizing people and taking all their rights away and all of that stuff. So metanoia, I change my mind. (laughs) I'm not supporting Hugo anymore. I want something different. If that kind of thing, that's what that word means, metanoia. I realize I've been wrong and I have attached my faith, if you will, to the wrong man. So that's, that's the way metanoia would be used in a general sense in the Greek language, changing one's mind and one's allegiance, just following in a different direction. That happens in big ways in life and it happens in small ways in life. Spiritually and biblically when it's used, metanoia is focused on who I worship and on my condition as a sinner. If I put my belief in something, a religion or a preference or a belief that leads me away from God, metanoia is I realize that and I'm turning and God graciously opens my eyes so I turn to him. And now I'm pursuing him. I'm following after him. That's what it would be. So I deeply regret having shunned him, having held him at bay, having sinned against him, having wasted years of my life not following him. Let me give you another example. Let's say on a spiritual note, let's say I believe I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a nice guy. And I really am. My favorite book is I'm okay, you're okay. (laughs) So you have to be old to laugh at that because you remember, see young people just looked at me but he laughed because he's he's old enough to remember that book. (laughs) So I start learning about Jesus and I read the Sermon on the Mount and suddenly I realize, oh my, I'm not okay. Nobody's okay. Humanity is, is full of sin and I am full of sin. So I turn in faith to Jesus for deliverance and I reject what I was and what I claimed before. So metanoia describes this internal change that occurs. It's certainly more than an intellectual change. It includes regret, even sorrow for what I was. I realize I am wrong and I choose to go another way and I don't follow that other way anymore. A big change has happened and that's what regeneration actually produces. So faith and repentance go together. They are, the theologians would say, inseparable graces. That's a really important phrase. In fact, it's in our doctrinal statement. You know, if anybody ever bothers to go back and read our doctrinal statement, you should every now and then. It's beautiful. It's, you know, the New Hampshire Baptist Confession basically slightly modernized. But it says this, there's a whole section called of repentance and faith. It says, we believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties and also inseparable graces. 
wrought in our souls by the regenerating spirit of God, whereby being deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and helplessness, and of the way of salvation by Christ, we turn to God with unfeigned, that means not fake, right? Unfeigned contrition, confession, and supplication for mercy, and at the same time, heartily receiving the Lord Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, and relying on him alone as the only and all-sufficient Savior. Whoever wrote that thing is perfect. <laughs> well, he might not be perfect, but he perfectly described it. If I want to make it a little more down to earth, let me quote R.C., uh, J.C. Ryle, I mean, J.C. Ryle. He's a great Anglican bishop from a previous century. He said, true repentance is never alone in the heart of any person. It always has a companion, a blessed companion. It is always accompanied by lively faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Wherever faith is, there is repentance. Wherever repentance is, there is always faith. I do not decide which comes first, whether repentance comes before faith or faith before repentance, but I am bold to say that the two graces are never found separate one from the other. Just as you cannot have sun without light or ice without cold or fire without heat or water without moisture, you can never find true faith without true repentance. And you will never find true repentance without lively faith. The two things always go side by side. It's exactly right. That's what we find in scripture. They always accompany each other. If you think about it, they actually have to, they have to accompany each other. Just think about what it means to, for a sinner to come to Jesus Christ. What's actually going on there? I mean, we've offended him. You can't say, I'm coming to Jesus, but I haven't done anything wrong. Uh, that just doesn't work. That, I make no apologies. If we say that, he won't take us. Because that's not any sign of grace working in your heart, right? He is the king he is the judge, and I have personally rebelled against his authority. And I've broken his laws many times. So if now we accept his mercy and take him for our king with a whole heart, then repentance is the most natural thing in the world. It naturally accompanies faith. We believe with repentance. In fact, scripture itself often does put faith and repentance together. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Mark's gospel, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth are, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Mark 1.15. Repent and believe. Inseparable graces. We aren't quite there yet, but in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, Paul's speaking to the Ephesian elders and he reminds them, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of... Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith. That's Paul's description of his own message. Repentance and faith. And it's true, sometimes only one is mentioned and sometimes another one is mentioned, repentance or faith. Sometimes they're both mentioned, but they, it, whatever you see, either one, it stands for both because they go together all the time. Repent is sometimes mentioned when the emphasis is really on the need to address guilt. That's why Peter in Acts is seen that way. Sometimes faith is mentioned alone when the discussion or the issue is really justification, how you can be right with God. 
There's already a heart broken over sin like the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? He realizes he needs salvation. So Paul just says believe. And repentance is already a sign. It's already coming out of this guy. So these are inseparable graces and you can see why. If you come to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you're coming as a rebel and a sinner, our faith in him is coming from a position of repentance. It has to. That's the only thing that's appropriate to that. So I hope that makes sense to you. Recently a very nice lady took me to task for saying that I was a sinner during the communion service we had last time. I said I do sin. And she was insistent that anybody with the Holy Spirit does not sin. They don't do that. And I said, you never sin? And uh, I said, you don't lose your temper? You don't lust? You don't fib? No, I have the Holy Spirit. So I asked her, why did Paul say, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption? Why would he say that if we don't sin? I mean, the whole New Testament is full of Christians sinning, so it's not like, but, but if you're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, he specifically said to people who were sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And that sentence, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, all before it and all after it are just exhortations to Christians to stop sinning. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. He who steals, let him steal no longer, but rather give thanks and give and all this kind of stuff. All of that. Why does he say that? Because we still sin. We all still sin. She didn't really show a lot of interest in the scripture but so much of the New Testament is devoted to that. Encouraging us to give up our sins and transform ourselves through the Holy Spirit and the ministry of Christ to our souls. How can a believer be completely unaware of their own sin? I mean I don't know. But people who believe they never sin they've got a whole lifetime ahead of them to rationalize every sin they do because if they believe they can't sin they're all, and in fact I've, there are people that believe they're perfectly sanctified there is a little group of Christians that believe that and those are the most arrogant people on the planet generally because they never sin so if they blow up in your face it was totally justified right because they don't sin so they, they never apologize they never they can't how can they they don't have to apologize so this is a person who will never repent or never confess or never even apologize based on a, a, a weird doctrine in their head that they got from somewhere. Wrong ideas are such a burden. She can never say the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass. She can't do it. Well, that's not me. I, that's not my prayer. I can't think of one great saint down through all the ages of church history in every century and every time and every place I can't think of one world changer Christian in the past who believed that they were free of sin. In fact, it's the opposite. They are the ones that are most aware of their deep sin. There's no spiritual power in lying to yourself that you're not a sinner. Now it's true that before God we're counted as holy because Jesus satisfied God's wrath against us by his sacrifice. That's certainly true. Positionally we're not sinners in the eyes of God. His blood makes us clean before divine justice. That's true. But we still sin. So our standing before God and our real lives are, are two different things. Martin Luther gave a little four word formula which became standard in Reformation thinking. Simul Iustus 
et peccator, little Latin, which I probably mangled, but it, it means simultaneously saint and sinner. Simultaneously saint and sinner. That's where we are until we go to be with the Lord. We are righteous before the bar of divine justice, but we battle sin in us still. We are at war with our flesh. Now let me bring this down and make it a little bit practical. First of all, if you have not trusted in Jesus yet, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ that's real and vibrant based on the things we just talked about, turning to him, being born again, repenting, turning from whatever you are or have been to him to make him the center of everything in your life, I have two words for you. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Those are inseparable graces that God will grant you. Humble yourself before the Lord. He, Christ is worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your life. And you need to be reconciled to God. There's no other thing to be done if you are not reconciled to God. You have to be. Following him will not make you popular. But it will bring joy and it will bring peace. And in the end it will bring everlasting life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said. So repent and put your faith in him. Now, if you've already believed in him for your salvation and you know that you're secure in his love, I've got two words for you. <laughs> Fight sin. <laughs> Fight sin. Repent. Develop a lifestyle of repentance. And I don't mean a gloomy, maudlin obsession with your sin. But I do mean ongoing repentance. And I really believe just my own experience and what I've seen time after time after most modern Christians don't do it. They don't spend time repenting. They just don't. They, they don't think that way. They're caught up in other things. They, they just don't do it. I, that's a horrible, terrible thing. Because mostly when we sin, if we apologize to the person we've offended, we think we've repented. And that's a good thing to apologize. But if we don't repent before God, and I think we rarely do, we cannot grow spiritually. That, that's where you get stuck. If you don't take it there before him, on your knees, humbly, asking for his mercy and strength, you won't change. You'll do it again and again and again. That's why some, sometimes, now look, we all have little besetting sins. We have certain things that just keep nagging at us, right? We all do. But you can have real change in your life if you repent, if you have a repenting life. That's part of your daily time with God. If we don't repent before God, we won't grow. Worldly people re apologize. They apologize for being a jerk, right? Some of the, there's a lot of nice people out there that they blow it and they apologize to somebody. So, wow, I'm as good as the world. No, it's deeper than that. See, something else is going on there. They don't repent because everybody does it and I was sorry and uh, but Christians talk that way they are missing something really important the one who makes and enforces the rules they don't talk to him about what they've done and he's the one chiefly concerned in our sin right David's great psalm of repentance we read one earlier Psalm 32 the other one Psalm 51 I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and you are blameless when you judge. He had a man killed and 
committed adultery with his wife and he's saying against you only have I sinned. And it doesn't mean that he didn't sin against Uriah and he didn't sin against Bathsheba and his whole kingdom for being such a horrible example. But he's saying that all sin ultimately is against God. And if you don't go there to that place, nothing's going to get fixed. So he understands he wronged other people greatly, but he sinned against God because it's God's rules that he broke. So our sins need to be brought to God. And if we repent, that act of being in God's presence can be turned into an experience of receiving forgiveness and mercy and it can be burden lifting and joyful and wonderful. 1 John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? That experience of bringing our sins to God and receiving his forgiveness is a powerful change agent, if you will. It's this powerful sanctifying influence on our lives because sorry doesn't lead to sanctification. It might mend a relationship that's been broken between you and another person, but repentance changes you. Saying I'm sorry to somebody doesn't change you. Not in that way. It's a worldly way. So spiritual growth does not happen by doing what the world does. It happens by doing what God expects of us. And he is the one chiefly offended in all of our sins. That's what Christians are called to do. You know, if you sinned in the Old Testament, what would you do? You can't plead the blood of Jesus. What do you do? You draw blood. You draw blood. You bring a sacrifice. You've got to go through quite a process. You've got to take an animal, one of your flock, part of your stock, and give it up and slit its throat and pour its blood out. That's a big deal. Well, we don't have to do that because we have Jesus. Yeah, but sin isn't any less serious because of what Jesus covering our sin. It's more. It, it means more that he did that than that you're killing an animal. And too many Christians just don't, they haven't built repentance into their Christian walk. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. It's a failure to make time with the Lord for one thing. We just don't have that time we set aside for him to reflect and to bring our sins before him. We, we, we don't get in the word enough so we don't, we're not convicted by the word. We have a million distractions to keep us busy. You cannot repent staring at a phone. You can't. Unless it says repent. <laughs> Put that on your screensaver. <laughs> Have you repented today? <laughs> what are you doing? Maybe I'll put that on my phone. <laughs> Think about these words from Jesus' brother James in James chapter 1 verse 21. He said, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. And once he's looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of a person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. What's he describing there? Time in the word of God. Using the word of God as a mirror for your soul, your life. Comparing yourself. Read the Sermon on the Mount. How you doing? By looking intently at the word, not one time, but regularly, 
So we know what kind of a person we are. We need to do that. Simultaneously saint and sinner. We are both. And you get an understanding of that from reading God's word. A little later in James in chapter 4 he says very politely and kindly, you adulteresses. <laughs> do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's two ways to go right there. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And he will exalt you. What is that mourning and misery and weeping? What's that all about there? That's repentance. That's what that is. Humble yourselves. Where? Where do I humble myself? In the presence of the Lord. And if you don't bring yourself into the presence of the Lord, you can't do that. You can't just float along as a Christian in life. You've got to give God the time to shape and mold you humble yourselves before him in the presence of the Lord. If you never do that, if you don't do that, I, I, get, I can make you a promise. Your spiritual life will be flat. And that's not good because you should be growing. You should be growing. Sin will win and you'll never grow. So I encourage you to think about that. Think about it the next time you sin. But you should be thinking about making that commitment to spend time with God on a regular basis. Find your place with God on your knees and repent and never get tired of doing it because it's the agent of change and sanctification in your life. Let's pray. Lord to grieve your spirit is something we should hate to do. You, you want a vibrant life-giving fellowship with us but often we deny it to you because we don't bother with the fundamental things. So help us stay in that perfect law and to know what kind of people we are and where we see the ugliness of sin in us, that very sin which took your son to the cross, remind us to bend our knees and repent. Remind us by your spirit, we pray in the name of our great Savior, Jesus. Amen.